What's up, everybody? Namaste. Thank you so much for joining the light side. Today, I have a lovely, beautiful, amazing intellectual guest. Her name is Victoria Felcar. She is a doctoral researcher and a women's health consultant. And um, I'm, we're going to get into all things today, like from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I originally reached out to her to have her guest speak on my Conscious Champion Contest Prep Masterclass because I have a lot of women in there who are just curious about their health and everybody, you know, how the bodybuilding industry is. Um, it's kind of definitely ridden with steroids. So I, I, the reason I reached out to her was that I think education is the most powerful tool that we can have. And after looking at some of her stuff, I was like, man, I have to get this. I have to get this girl over to my champions to help them see what's up. Um, so, and then I talked to her and then this whole other side of her opened up and it was like art and spirituality and meditation. And I was like, we need to talk more. And then I found out we have the same birthday. So I was like, synchronicity, here we go. We're doing a podcast. Victoria, welcome. Oh, thank you. I, lo I love that intro. <laughs> love it. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm really excited to cover some stuff that I've never talked about before on a podcast. Like, and I've done a lot of podcasts over the years, mm -hmm. but we've never gone this route and it's, it's really exciting. Right. It's so exciting for me as well. So I, let's just start and give everybody kind of a background on you. Like, how did mm -hmm. you sort of like, and I, I know you told me you, you've been in the fitness industry for like 15 years, you've been around it for mm -hmm. a while. So why don't we just kind of start there and segue into now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I first got into the fitness industry. Um, I always joke it was the pre-DLV era, which we had a laugh about that on the phone because things were different back before like Instagram and social media and you know, women's physique and bikini. And, and it was a different fitness industry than we have today, especially for women. So I started training uh, at 15 actually I started working out before that but it was more like just running um but I started lifting at 15 16 and um my curiosity of just wanting to learn more kind of then got me to do night school for personal training because I was like I want to learn for me and so I was in grade 12 and I was like I just need to I need to just learn like from the book because I didn't trust the bros because the bros would help me like get into the, the actual like actually it was like a three-day split of arms shoulders and back so <laughs> wasn't really a lot there and so I I started lifting I was still I was a competitive dancer growing up so I was still dancing at the time and I just started to realize like how much I loved the weight room and I loved lifting um and so then I mean I've I've, I've lifted it consistently since I really haven't stopped even till today it looks different now and it's looked different at different points in my journey over the last 15 years. But I think the longest I've ever taken off is maybe two weeks max. Yeah, maximum two weeks, I'd say. Um, because I just, I love it. I love though connecting to my body. And uh, I just love the human body. And so that was actually too, I went, I went into um, kinesiology, human kinetics was my undergrad. And that was really, it was because I just wanted to learn more. And my own life journey kind of shifted and changed my pursuits for those who go into medicine. And then I went to research. Um, but throughout it all, I've never stopped lifting. I've worked in, I mean, hardcore bodybuilding gyms. I've helped promote like, I mean, Canadian nationals back in the day and all of that stuff. I've trained competitors myself. Um, 
I've never competed, but I probably think we're going to get into that a little bit more why that's the case. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, my boyfriend runs a bodybuilding podcast network, so we're still we're still in it. I couldn't tell you though who like the top people are today because I definitely am not as as deep in the bodybuilding world, but I'm still very much in that kind of fitness sphere today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that little, I, we have a very similar place where we are now. Like, I feel like I'm very much in it, but I'm not in it, consumed yeah. by it. Like, I don't really know who's at the, I know who's at the top of women's physique, like Shanique, yeah. that's in, in Natalia, but that's pretty much it. But I still love, I still love it, you know, like, mm -hmm. and so that's, and I'm so glad that me and you got connected this way. So mm -hmm um kind of through the fitness industry too and that's really it's really awesome um so now i'm now i'm very curious tell me about the competition yeah. well, so what was how come you never um competed so i tried many times i did my first prep at 17 and uh so back then it was i mean i had two choices it was uh, three choices that was either fitness figure or bodybuilding and i was a dancer and i had used to be like i used to do tricks and stuff and dance so i was like okay fitness was it was what i loved it was actually how i got into the industry i was at the grocery store uh it would have been back in 2005 and i saw no 2004 and i saw a picture of monica brandt on the cover of oxygen and uh i was like dang she looks amazing and at that time i had a very severe eating disorder and so I, uh, I mean, I was running a lot and by a lot, I mean, I was like substantial. It was about a half marathon three times a week. Um, and that was my kind of short runs. I had longer runs and I was also dancing. Um, I did part-time high school. So I was dancing a lot at the same time. I was eating maybe 300 calories a day 300? coming from things 300. Yeah. Okay. Things like breath mints and broccoli. Um, that was about it. Uh, and it was breath mints because my ketosis was so bad. And for me to try to hide it, if you consume enough breath mints, it will eventually go away. Um, and it also upsets your stomach enough that you don't want to eat. Uh, but uh, so at that time, I, I just didn't know enough about food. Like I had, I had such a phobia of it. Um, and it very much still uh, very mac, not mac. Like today we have like, if it's your macros and even like my dad, who's 70 knows what macros are because of like, what is doctors telling them? But back then it was all about calories. And so I was so calorie focused. So when I picked up this, this issue of oxygen, which I still have, um, she had her diet in it and whether or not that was her diet, who knows, but I saw how much she was eating and what she looked like. And I was like, well, if I want to look like her, I need to start eating more. And so I took what she, uh, I mean, the basic general template i had already a bunch of food allergies and stuff like that i, I was diagnosed with celiacs really young and so i there were still some restrictions on that end but i went from eating i mean 300 calories a day to like 12 to 1500 um and so that was really really important for kind of my origins because not only was it that i got introduced to this amazing body and I, then it was like mindy o'brien and she's canadian too and she was like fitness champion at the time and i was like Oh, hail Mindy. Like, and I, Mindy and I are friends. And I was like, Oh, you inspired me so much back in the day. Um, and so I, I started, I, I had a figure 
uh, kind of national level, Canadian national level um, figure short uh, competitor. She was um, not prepping me at the time. It was like kind of pre, it was like just seeing what I could do with my physique and I could put muscle on really quickly. I was really strong. Um, and so at 17, I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Uh, but my body wasn't cooperating at all at the time. Uh, because number one, I was young too. I had a lot of health stuff already starting. Um, I was, uh, I mean, I was on the pill. I came off the pill. Um, and I was, it was put on it very young. I had the eating disorder. I, my body never went through puberty properly. Uh, got into first year university and first semester of first year, I, my, my body just, it had another plan for me. And that was to get very, very sick. And so while my intentions were to, to compete and I was, I, you know, I had moved out, I was going to undergrads so a full course load. I had just gone through a lot of personal stuff in the previous year. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was her primary caretaker. Like it was just chaos. Then it was going off the pill and I was still like, you know, taking the bus at three 30 in the morning to go do morning cardio because that was the only time I had to do it. Um, and then taking the bus directly to campus, going to school full course load, and then going to the gym on campus after, before then busing home. And it was, it was a lot for my body and my body just couldn't handle it anymore. And so I ended up getting uh, pneumonia, but it was common cold that of course I didn't listen to my body and I kept lingering. And then it turned into pneumonia and bronchitis and laryngitis. And sure enough, it was like, I was becoming resistant to certain antibiotics. And so after all that happened, I gained about 30 pounds in three weeks. And the doctors at the hospital at least didn't know why. And they're just like, oh, it's just fluid. And I was like, I don't think so. I don't think it's just fluid. I started getting hair growth. Uh, so secondary hair growth, my voice actually dropped. Um, at, at first, they thought it was just because of the laryngitis um, and that I didn't stop talking when I had laryngitis. And then it was like, well, actually, I think it's maybe more than just that. My cortisol went really high and then it absolutely bottomed out. And so then it was going through all these different physicians to try to figure out what was wrong with me. And I got bounced around from specialist to specialist to specialist. But meanwhile, I'm still doing morning cardio. I am still training my ass off. And I got really strong because my androgens went high. So I was like, I was dumbbell pressing 90s at 19. Holy shit. Like just stupid strong. Because my androgen levels were just through the, through the roof, but I was like, I can maximize, I can make, I can maximize this. This is going to be okay to do. It was not okay to do. My body was so de uh, destructive and just devastated from all my abuse to it. So, anyways, long story short, I uh, I ended up getting paired with uh, the mountain dog John Meadows um, through a friend of mine who knew John from the forms back in the day. And this was like before John was the mountain dog and only had a couple clients. And he looked at me, he's like, your body is like, I don't understand it. And you need to come see my doctor. So I flew down to Ohio and I saw him as doctor and uh, Eric Serrano was amazing. And he's, I mean, he's been my mentor and my colleague and one of my good friends. But back then he was like, you can try competing again, but like, like prepping again. He's like, but I don't think your body's going to do it. <laughs> like, screw you, Eric. I'm going to prove you wrong. So again, I tried. And, you know, and it was, I probably started seven or eight preps. And the 
closest I got was when I was 25 and I prepped for 32 weeks and I got to five weeks out. It was when women's physique just started. Uh, I started in 24, 25, um, that 2013, 2012, 2013. Um, and, uh, I was five weeks out and I was torturing myself. Like I was already prepping people at the time. I knew better, but when you are already in the industry, you already have a, a name behind you. I was like, I cannot lose. Like the, the amount of stress I put on myself was obscene. And even though my eating disorder had been in remission for years, those thoughts started to creep up on me. And at the same time, I'm still, I mean, I was in my master's. I actually got accepted in my master's to a PhD summer program that was going to be the week after the competition. My parents were moving across the country. So we were moving out of our house for 20, like, I mean, that I was literally raised in. They were moving from British Columbia to Ontario. Um, and so it was like, instead of me spending time with them, I was at the gym. Uh, I was doing a crap ton of cardio, not a lot of food, you know, the typical, the typical depletion, which sometimes that's needed, but it's not needed for as long as I was doing it. Um, and then I got, um, I got that faced with that hard reality of that. I was still too big for women's physique. So at five weeks out, I had a national level judge look at me and she's like, Victoria, she's a friend of mine. She's like, Victoria, you're still too big. And I'm looking at my body and I'm going like, my le- I shrunk my legs down so much. But back at the beginning of women's physique, the women were a lot smaller than they are now. Like it was really just that, that same, I would say that, that Y frame that you see, saw in figure, but just like a little bit more peeled and I could keep my muscle, but it was getting rid of the fat. Cause I have a lot of pre inner dispositions that genetically I'm like, I shouldn't even really be alive when we started looking under the surface on things, let alone be in stage conditioning. So ultimately what it came down to is what I had to do, I was not willing to do. And I realized that at five weeks out of looking some like a way I didn't want to look, um, having to start to like, you know, go down that eating disorder route because it was already starting. I could feel it. Um, not be able to spend time with my parents, not be able to pursue my career academically. I actually had my first international conference three, it would have been three weeks out. And I was like, I can't even think. I don't know. If, if somebody asks me a question, like, I don't know what I'm going to be able to answer. And so in that moment, I just was like, no, like, I will always love bodybuilding. I will always be a bodybuilder, but I'm not a competitive bodybuilder. I cannot pursue the sport of bodybuilding. That is just not in it for me. And that's okay. And I was able to just release and let go. Um, and then continue to push my physique. I can, I had to kind of work on my mind too, because I had to let go of that kind of that dream I had for at that point in time, almost a decade. Um, I was like, I've always been so strong. So then I was like dappling with powerlifting because I was like, well, at least I can get strong. I might be getting fat again, but at least I can get be strong. Um, and, uh, and then that took its own pursuit. Like my, and naturally my androgens were always really high. So then I decided, I was like, you know what? I never feel great because my androgens are so high naturally, like my adrenal androgens in particular. And so as a researcher in this world, I know it's not sustainable. I know it's not healthy. I know it's not a good thing to be long-term. And it wasn't about fertility for me. It was about longevity. And so I decided to actually reduce my androgens, which then 
there's some changes that happen to your physique as a result of that. And so I did lose a lot of muscle. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's why I don't compete. I love bodybuilding, but I also recognize the hard reality is it's not for all of us. So glad you said that. I'm so glad because I know there's many people out there who maybe not the same journey as you, but they've mm -hmm. tried to compete a billion times and they keep pushing it and forcing it. And, and even if they do get on stage, then, you know, then it's like the repercussions afterwards and bodybuilding the competitive side of it doesn't have to be for everybody. And I think I, and I talked to a lot of people who are getting ready to leave the sport. Like they've been competing yeah. and then, and then now they're super afraid to not be competing yeah. and not look like they compete. And it's sometimes it is a very superficial reason or they have this mm -hmm. pro card in their mind and they need to get this pro card. And then, mm -hmm. and then what, and then what happens when you get your pro card? Like, what does this mean? And yeah. I, I, I'm actually glad that we're having this conversation in the way that you present not competing mm -hmm. Um, because sometimes competing can create hormonal imbalances, eating disorders, mental, it creates all of this stuff. Yeah. 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 But I went into it, my bags were already full. Um, and that was really important. I think it was important for me to learn because I knew it. I talked about it. I lectured on it from a health aspect. I mean, I taught classes on like the social determinants of health and what are the things that make us, but I'd never applied it before that. I'd never applied it to like the world of exercise physiology, the world of competitive bodybuilding, the world of personal training. And then that allowed me to do that and to be like, hey, when we start that prep, we all have our baggage. We all have our backpacks. And some of us, our backpacks aren't very full. Others, like myself, my backpack was exploding from emotional and psychological things to physiological to the actual, my actual genetic makeup. I mean, it wasn't just about like, like if we look at from just structurally, I have a pretty good base for competing. I mean, I've got, I've got great legs. I've got narrow hip bones. Like that whole idea of when people say like, oh, you have the genetics. It's like, well, no, actually, like there's a lot of stuff in there from inflammatory responses to the ways in which I create neurotransmitters, the ways I metabolize estrogen to autoimmune issues. There's a lot there that's not the safest thing. You're playing with fire. And so for some people, that's okay. And I'm not going to judge them. But for me personally, it wasn't in my cards. And I just, I accepted that. I, I accepted that we all have our own journeys and that for me, it was helping women on the other side. Oh my gosh. What was it like um, letting that go and almost like stepping into your pur the purpose on the other side? Yeah. So it was, it was interesting because I, I had this moment of like, I thought back to, so my, my mom, um, she passed away last year, but she was brilliant. She was my best friend, my mentor, my soulmate. I, I just, I can't say enough about her. And, but at 19, um, I got asked to start doing some consulting work, some writing for fit in the fitness industry. And she sat down, she came down to where I was working and we went for coffee and she was like, you have to promise me that you will always be a brain, that you will never be a body because you are so much more than a body. You have a body, but you are so much more than a body and you have this brilliant brain. And even though you're going into this world of bodies, do not let yourself become one. And so, and I had it written down. I mean, I had journaled out and I journaled my whole life and uh, I forgot though. 
when I was prepping, I forgot that. And suddenly I became that body because I mean, ultimately that's what bodybuilding is. You're standing on a stage asking people to judge what you look like. You're a body. They don't give a a fuck about what you are and who you are and what you do. It's, it's your body in that moment. You are a body. And so that's the beautiful thing though, too, about bodybuilding is you can come into it without having this kind of, uh, sociological baggage that you can come into it just being neutral, like all walks of life. Um, so it's, it's a double-edged sword on that one. But so that for me, reminding myself of that was so liberating was being able to say like, you know what, I'm a brain. I've never wanted to be a a body and going back to my roots. Um, and I feel like there's been many points in my life where I've strayed away for a little bit. I've gotten caught up in kind of the, the energies that aren't my own path, but then I've always been able to come back to that and to remind myself of that. And so that was one of those moments where it was like, okay, okay, I got this. This is good. This is okay. It was still a journey. I can't, I'm not going to lie. It was, I mean, people still ask me to this day of why I don't compete and if I ever will. And it's just like, no, you know what? I won't. And that's okay. Like it is so okay to be, to be a bodybuilder does not mean you have to compete. It means that you are intentionally manipulating your body through diet and training and other methods. And my body now, the way I look is reflective of a lot of other variables too, from, I mean, even just, you know, working on certain types of injuries that I had nagging over the years and increasing my mobility again, all the way to actually being okay with how my, you know, quads look without me beating the crap out of them twice a week, every week and finding acceptance in that. Um, Because I think we can still want to pursue a physique beyond what ours is currently and find acceptance for the one that we have today. And that was something I lost when I was pursuing competitive bodybuilding. Yes. 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 I want to like scream because <laughs> acceptance is such a good word. And I, I talked to my friend the other day, she was reading this Melody Beatty book um, mm. about acceptance is freedom yeah. and acceptance is freedom. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you can't actively pursue getting better or getting more fit or getting more healthy, but accepting where you are right now yeah. is something that in bodybuilding teaches us to not kind of do yeah. that it kind of yeah. teaches us to, to do the opposite so opposite. I'm really yeah yeah, yeah. god I'm, I'm happy that you said that and then even accepting yourself after bodybuilding so many people ask me they're like how do you feel about your body changing so much mm-hmm. like you used to be you know on whatever and now it's and now I like I I've taken a big break from the gym mm-hmm. <laughs> big old break even right now like I'm like my life hasn't changed quarantine didn't I, I do yoga a lot now yeah and for me I had to almost not go into the gym for me to be able to be okay with my body. Yeah. Like I never knew how to work out to be healthy. Yeah. It was always like, like you, like I started very early, like you, like 15 yeah. and in high school, getting ready for shows and the acceptance. I actually, mushrooms helped me with that yeah. <laughs> mushroom trip. Um, but acceptance was huge, at, pa- yeah. paramount. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So now you're in a mode of like service. So going from being on the one trying to get on stage is very self-serving. 
And now you're in a world where you're researching and it's the purpose is to help other women and to serve the world in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of like, what are you, how is your service now? What is it? Yeah. So I am, I'm an interdisciplinary researcher. Um, And I always tell people I'm also a storyteller though, um, because that's kind of what I've always thought of my work as being is I get to tell the stories of um, these really crazy, crazy stories where I'm like, the, I mean, perspectives around women and on anabolic steroid use, but then how does that influence clinical decision-making? And how is that influenced even ideas around women and natural endogenous androgens? Because it has, and that's the crazy thing people forget, that medicine has a really dark, ugly history and it mixes and changes the ways that med- clinical decisions are made today, clinical research is made today, and that that's the type of work I get to do is I go look at that stuff as it relates to the female athlete body, um, women and steroids of all different types from birth control and hormonal birth control agents to anabolic androgenic steroids and even others like corticosteroids and other types of dysfunctions, ones that are even natural like things like hyperandrogenism or what people refer to as PCOS, but I don't because that's not really the right language. We're not going to get into that one today because <laughs> um, that's another that's another story on its own. Um, and also like the integrated health. And so I also, I mean, I really see myself as part of my work is building puzzles. Um, and that I work with, as a consultant, I work with a bunch of different individuals from those that are looking to improve their own health status or learn more about it or their performance to coaches and physicians and practitioners that are looking to learn more about uh, either specific case studies or just general um, topics related to my research and my work. Um, And so not only do I get to help women, you know, build their own health story, uh, learn about it, but also put pieces of their own puzzle together and learn how to manage it long-term. Because a lot of times in our industry in particular, we're very narrow focused. We're very, you know, tunnel vision, and there's not a lot of thought about what comes next or if I do X, Y is going to happen, but then it's a lot more than just Y. There's a lot more things that are involved. And so often it's, it's building a different discourse. It's educating. Um, I build knowledge now. I don't just build bodies. I, I build bodies, but I build knowledge. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my service now and that it's, it's been an amazing journey. It's been one that I can say I've been on since I was about 16. I remember the day, what I was doing, everything that I knew that this was my path. I have not lost sight of it since then. It's just changed. It's not as direct, but I don't think it will ever be as direct as we think it's going to be. Um, and it's been, I truly love what I do. I don't, I'm not going to love, and I don't think this goes for anything in life. We're not going to love every single moment. Um, but the, the times that are more difficult, the challenges that have been involved on the way to here, they are so worth it when I get to, you know, educate to a group of people or talk to somebody who's been like myself, pushed from doctor to doctor and had no clue what's going on. And all of a sudden I'm like, actually it's, it's right in front of us. Like, we don't need to look any further um, and continue to expand and grow myself um, as a researcher. That's a big piece of it is that it's about 
really pushing my own brain now, just as much as I used to push my body um, to to pursue unknown knowledge and get that out to the world. Tell those stories. Wow. What's the thing that's the most exciting for you right now? Uh, it's funny. I was meditating this morning and it was, it was on, it was on focus um, with pursuing a task or a goal that you might also be scared of, which for me is my PhD. Um, so I am five years in, I've got about probably another year left. Um, I don't know if this crops, if people are going to still be able to see the background at all, but like there's research on my floor. I'm a neat freak, but there's research on my floor because I'm actually having to go back in and analyze all of my data at the moment. Cause there were some things that came up that I then had to go back in as a good research and be like, not okay with what my original data analysis was. So that's really exciting for me. Um, I love researching. Fucking love it. My brain loves it. I, the more complicated puzzles, I love it. But I'm also working with some incredible individuals with my consulting right now, um, which is always so exciting and so fulfilling. And even though I should be probably doing my PhD 110% of the time, I need that stuff. I need to stay in the trenches because that's what keeps me motivated on my PhD. And that's what keeps me moving forward because that practical information that I get to do with practitioner um, end of things, it fuels my PhD. It pushes me to rewrite the history of women's health and sport um, because the current way that it is recognized is such a fragmented and myopic discussion that is absolutely um, disturbing, to be honest. Um, that we've accepted it for the last 130 years. Wow. Yeah. So exciting. Big. I love that you are in it and you're researching it. So I think it's a really cool dynamic and I love that it drives your why. It keeps you motivated and excited about your research because PhDs are hard. Like it's not an easy walk in the park. You're writing, you're researching. It's very much like can be a solitary thing. Mm-hmm. And then you have the practical stuff with your yeah. consulting. Yeah. And um, honestly, doing a PhD is a lot like competing. Like yeah. a lot of the same mindset of feeling like you're never good enough, uh, feeling like you need to do more, that nothing is ever enough. That is the academic world. And then as a PhD student, that's especially the world that you're in. Um, and so it definitely has been... Um, I made a decision two years ago that I was going to do it my way. Um, I, I have been a workaholic since for as long as I can remember, even back in elementary school. And I mean, that's the, I think that's the early history that I've, I've recently, I think over those last two years, really acknowledged and accepted the, the roads that led me, the fibers of me that have shaped certain types of um, conversations and dialogue I have with myself or about myself. And uh, learning to recognize that when I, like my whole spiritual journey, I think I thought that a spiritual awakening was going to be like the heavens open up and you hear like the angels and it's just like, oh, everything's now Zen and perfect. And mine was so ugly. Like once I, oh, did I lose you? There we go. Okay. (laughs) Um, Once I accepted that I was doing this thing. (laughs) 
I was doing, I was breaking open and there was nothing I, I won't, I, there was nothing I could do to stop these massive changes that were going to be happening in my life. Once I accepted that and I broke open, it was, it was fucking ugly. It was gnarly. There were days that I did not want to get out of bed because there was so much stuff that I was processing. And I'm very grateful. I had an amazing, you know, support network that helped me through it, but it still doesn't make it any easier. It still doesn't make it any less messier. And it's something I'm working on today and I will be working on for the rest of my life because that's yeah. the choice that I'm, I'm, I'm making for me to live a, a full and purposeful life that's conscious and also open. And being open is so much harder than being closed off to certain things, even if they're your own demons and trauma. Yes. Wow. Okay. Let's go, let's go into the spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so excited. I'm all goosebumps. <laughs> so when did this spiritual thing get introduced to you? So I'm a researcher. So yes. people go like people just, I think it, they get, they kind of lose their minds a bit. Cause they're like, how, how, like you're science, you're empirical, you're, this is you. And I'm like, but no, I learned through all of this, that those things can coexist and it's not a duality and at all. Um, but back in the day, I've always been mindful. I mean, I've journaled since I was a kid. Um, I've always had my gratitude. I have done really deep soul searching, like, again, going back to some of my OCD stuff that has its own anchors and has its own paths that they've broken open on those too. But I would always have like my, my, it's actually summer solstice. I would usually do my, my reflections. I just didn't know it was summer solstice back then, which is funny, but uh, I would do these like very rigid of like, I would have my subheadings and I would do my reflections and I've done that for years. But, um, so I, there was that mindfulness that was always there, but I wasn't, I, I was like, but then there's these people that are kind of like woo woo. And, uh, I lived, it was funny cause I lived in Vancouver, which is a very, I mean, liberal city, um, and there's a lot of very spiritual people. It's, and I lived in this one neighborhood that's like my parents or my dad, not my mom, but my dad was like, oh, you live around a bunch of hippies, and we'd have all these like new age bookstores and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I like, like you know, Wayne Dreyer, but there's some of the stuff that's just too woohoo for me. Um, now it's totally not. But back then, that was my, my attitude. And then I was like, I'm still a scientist. I still need to have rationality and blah, blah, blah. But really that was just a coding because I didn't understand. And what I didn't understand scared me. Um, and so for me, my spiritual journey, I would say really broke open. It would have been, there were cracks. It was like, so there's a, there's a quote that deeply profoundly changed my life. Um, and it was at the beginning of a book called broken open by Elizabeth lesser. And it's, um, and then the time came when the risk to remain in a tight bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And that quote changed me because I was going through, I was going through a couple of really hard years. I was working a lot. I was you know, building my career, I was arguably like kind of getting that, going to that top point of my career that I thought is what I wanted. I was traveling the world, speaking engagements. I was lecturing. I was doing my PhD. I was, you know, fully funded. Um, I was helping, you know, international clients. I was 
I was on top of my professional game. My personal life was in shambles. And I did not want to admit that. And I did not want to look at that. Um, my mom was um, very, very sick. So in 2015, there was a bunch of things that you know led to that. But it, in 2015, she confided in me about everything. She's just like, something's just not right. And I know that that my mom was, I mean, she was a healthcare executive. She was a pioneer nurse practitioner. When she says that, I was like, okay, what's up? So I actually flew back to Ontario, went to the doctors with her because she just was scared. Um, and that we found out in a couple of weeks that she had some really advanced autoimmune, very rare diseases. Um, at the same time, she had some weird uh, bacterial resistant, unknown um, UTIs happening, which would make her go crazy. So I was starting to see my mom like lose her mind. And my mom was brilliant. Like we could talk to each other without even talking. And, um, and so for me, that fear of my mother's mortality shook me to my core, but I also did whatever I could to pretend like it was not going to happen. And I ran and my version of running was burying myself in my work. I was in a very abusive relationship, very toxic relationship. Um, so again, burying myself in work was what I did. Um, and so I did that until I couldn't do that anymore. Um, my own health was really starting to suffer. And so even though I've always lived a very clean lifestyle, I know my health issues, I'm very conscious of them. There were things that were happening that I was like, I know what this means, but I don't want to. I don't want to think what this means. So I was getting autoimmune markers starting to pop up. And now autoimmunity, we often think that it's our body's defenses against these like abnormal occurrences, but really stress is what's often the, the agent that causes these. It's our body is fighting so hard that it starts fighting against itself because we're not giving it what it needs to survive. And that was me. And so with my mom and her autoimmunity stuff, it it really forced me to start to take this hard look at my life. And so I actually, my solution was getting a dog. Um, and that my dog's name is Maddie because she saves me from my madness. But she helped me because we would go, well, she would take me for walks. And I started listening to um, a co podcast that had, um, it was called The Beautiful Writers. Um, and it was about writers. And so, but the writers that they had on were all writers that were often writing spiritual books. And so I started getting introduced to kind of the creative process of these spiritual writers, which then made me want to get their books. And so I started, it was all very intellectual of how I kind of got into it. But then, you know, hearing them talk about certain things about relationships opened my eyes up to what I was in. Hearing about them talk about relationships, the things like grief and death and dying opened me up to what I was also facing. And so my way in maybe wasn't as glamorous or opening, but once I broke open, I broke open hard. I ended up, you know, uh, flying back and forth to Ontario multiple, multiple times because I was there for my mom whenever I could be. Um, I ended up leaving my, my ex and it was messy and it was disgusting. And I knew it was going to, but finally I got the courage to do that. Um, and then I, you know, I was living on my own and uh, I flew back in, to Ontario in it would have been February of 2018. And my dad just said to me, he's like, I can't keep your mom at home anymore. She's, she's too much work for me. And for me, that was like the, the pen dropped. And I was like, okay, I'm moving, I'm moving back to Ontario. And the reason was, is my why before 
building knowledge was always my family and it was always my mom. And that has always been, she was so important to me because she made me who I am. And I would not be who I am today without her. And so for me to be able to be there for her and to be able to be there for my dad was way more important to me than my career. Uh, it was way more important to me than I mean, so many things. And so not only did I have this crazy life thing happen with, you know, moving out and having to deal with all that shit and my career, I was teaching full course loads and all this other stuff was going on and trying to figure out my own stuff around like my relationship issues and everything else. And that, that it all just like, literally I broke open. I broke open spring, 2018. It was so ugly. It was so hard. It was the hardest time in my life until my mom passed away. But, uh, it was, it was my opening. Uh, and then, you know, I packed up my life. I left the city that I loved. I drove across Canada and then the U S by myself. And that was my little vision quests. And then all of a sudden I go from being in downtown Vancouver, um, born and raised to a very small town in Ontario. Uh, there were about 2000 people in my town. If that there's, there's like three stoplights. So it was, it was a culture shock and also coming, you know, moving home. And there's a lot of social perceptions around that too. Uh, I mean, going from, I moved out at 17 to then, uh, the ideas around, you know, living on your own means you're an adult now. And if you live in your parents' basements, you know, it's, it's taboo. Um, and so I had to accept that. I had to accept that that's what my new life was going to look like. Um, and that my, I had a greater purpose I was, I was after. And that was for me to help out as much as I could with my mom. And also to, I mean, I was still doing my PhD and everything else, but it was ugly. Like, I'm not going to lie to people. Like it was, if they saw me in, cause I did still do some speaking engagements, but if they saw me in summer, fall 2018, I was not me. I was exhausted. Like there were days I could not get out of bed. There were days that I just didn't want to. I, I, I tried I was just so burnt out. I was so broken. It was like all the years of trauma just started unfolding on me. I'd already started uh, meditating. I had, you know, I was wise enough to know I couldn't do it alone and it was probably going to be ugly and scary. And so I actually found like a spiritual guide advisor to help me. I had a therapist. I had, I had a lot of really good supporting people, but it doesn't make the breaking open any easier. And so I, you know, I had pushed my level of overdrive and then I just burnt out. I was excited for my life. I loved what I was doing, but I just burnt out. Um, I would cry. I was, nothing made me happy. I couldn't move. I would try to train and everything hurt. Nothing felt good. Nothing felt good. I was stiff in places. I didn't realize I was stiff. Movement just felt very unnatural. Things I'd been doing all the time. I had you know, I couldn't eat without bloating. I had social anxiety. Uh, I used to be a meticulous scheduler and I couldn't even schedule anything. I had meltdowns every time I would go to run an errand and it wouldn't go the way that I wanted it to go because my brain could not fathom anything more. My, it was so noisy. I couldn't fathom anything more. And um, at times I would sit down to work on my PhD. And I couldn't even get a sentence out and I had deadlines. And so it was, I, I mean, I hit the end of my very long and very frayed proverbial rope. And that, that was that. And so instead of me fighting it, I said no. And I shut down my life because I could have kept pushing it. 
but I also knew that my mom didn't have a lot of time left. And so I, um, I stepped back from academia. I stepped back from consulting. I started really listening to my body. I, you know, changed the way I was training. I wasn't going to the gym and I realized for me, it was the gym was all it had been really for 15 well, at that point, like 13 years was a coping mechanism and not a very good one because it was very abusive. You know, you hear all that people, like when people go like, oh, the gym is your church or leave it all on the gym floor. It was like, if you have noise in your head and you enter the gym, sometimes it can be very cathartic and clearing. But if your catharsism is you beating up your body, it's not really that healthy. And for me, it was one of those things where I was like, I can't sustain this. I enjoy training. I enjoy connecting to my body, but I got to do, you know, I, and I talked to some of my, my colleagues and I was like, low volume program, like give me six sets. That's all I'm allowed to do. Three exercises. Like, and I would check in with them because I knew that's what I needed. I needed help. I finally learned to say no. And I finally started to ask for help. And it was embarrassing because at that point, like on top of my, you know, my career, I was seen as this young trailblazer and everything else. And I had been told I was so strong and so emotionally resilient. I mean, even my psychiatrist back in Vancouver was like, you're the most like emotionally resilient patient I've ever had. And I'm like, well, great. But I'm like, I don't feel that way. Um, And so, yeah, I, I mean, I hit, I hit rock bottom. Um, I though realized that hitting rock bottom was a okay. It took me a couple months of being in the dark, ugly depths, but it, I realized that life is not a binary. We're not either here or there that being in the middle and living in uncertainty is an okay place to be. Um, I had always said, my mom and I always had this, you know, we always used to laugh about how we love to dance in the rain. And I realized that's what I needed to start doing with my life, that I couldn't wait for things to pass, the storm to pass. I couldn't hide from it either. I had to just embrace it for what it was. And realizing that I was 29 years old and about to lose my mom, who was my best friend and my soulmate and everything else, was going to be the hardest thing, but it was a lot harder for her than it was for me. It was a lot harder for her to realize and face her own mortality. It was a lot harder for her to realize that she wasn't going to see me grow up or her grandkids or my sisters. It was a lot harder for her to say goodbye to her life than it was for me to say goodbye to her. So I had to be there for her. And that helped me to show up. It helped me to realize that I had to keep working on me, but I also had to be there for her and I had to be there for my dad. And so I, that was my life. I mean, end of 2018 to 2019, that was my life. It was devoting myself to healing. It was meditating every day. It was going for walks, going in nature, getting myself ready. Cause I knew, I knew the end was coming and I knew I was, it was going to be ugly, but I also knew that grief does not happen after somebody dies. I was already starting to grieve. Um, and that, I had to acknowledge that I had to take care of myself and I had to just let go. You cannot control life. As somebody who was an OCD perfectionist, workaholic, everything, I fought tooth and nail for most of my life to control it. And suddenly life got far bigger and far messier than I could handle. And I finally, you know, woke up to realize that I got to let go. I got to be open to being open because this thing 
is far bigger than I am. And right now I am tired. I am so tired. So I like literally that was my, that was my breaking open. And that was me knowing that I couldn't just put my head down and forget about it. I couldn't just, you know, stay in the trenches and that I had to recognize that I, you know, the fire that was burning so bright in me was the one that burnt me out and it didn't need to get extinguished. I just had to let it sit and kind of smolder for a little bit so I could eventually come out of the ashes, but I didn't know when that was going to happen. So I just had to let it be. I just had to let it go. And that's, you know, it's the idea of, you know, surrendering. And that's, that's exactly what I did. And I'm still to this day, slowly healing, um, slowly learning what me is, um, learning my boundaries, uh, realizing that work is still not a coping mechanism <laughs> to this day. I'm still working on that one um, to sit and not constantly fix um, that it's okay to be scared and it's okay to be sad and it's okay to be, it's okay not to be okay. Um, I'm still learning what truly makes me happy. Um, I'm still learning what life is like without my mom. Um, because I, when I, the day she died, I actually faced my biggest fear in life. So part of my journaling that I did for years was I would always identify my, my fears. And from, I mean, 2011 till 2018, my journal always said, I am so afraid that when my mom's dying, that I'm not going to be strong enough to say goodbye. Uh, and I had to actually do that. I had to give her a hug for the last time. Okay. And I had to know that in that moment, that was the last hug I was ever going to give her. I had to see her take her last breath. And I, I actually went out of my mom's bedroom and then I turned around and I walked back in because I knew she needed me there because she always told me she needed me there. And so that was me just letting go and knowing I needed that too. I might not have wanted it, but I needed it. And there's a lot that I might not want, but right now and in that moment, like I didn't, it wasn't mine to choose. I just had to let it be. And um, yeah, I mean, I was ugly. It was, I, I though, I was, I was conscious enough of death to know and grief that it was going to suck. So I put my life on pause for seven months. Well, I put my work on pause for seven months. I lived life hard. I opened myself up to grief. I didn't fill it. There was a void. My mom's life was such a big, big part of me. My mom was such a big part of me. She still is today. But that void, I couldn't fill it. First of all, there's nothing big enough to fill it. Number one, I realized that. Two, I realized that by me not filling it meant I got to be with her. Mm. And so I went and that was, I mean, that was seven months and there's no time. There's no expiration. It's just, it's going to happen. And slowly things started to shift and, and go. And, but it's a very interesting thing as somebody who's, you know, not only a clinician in that world, but also an intellectual and also in the world of fixing to not fix yourself and to know that you're not depressed, you're sad. You're not, you know, your body's not broken. You're burnt out and you're grieving. And that has a huge impact on your actual physiology. 
and to know that you can't just take something to help you feel better because that's not going to make you feel better. It's going to, you're going to think that you feel better, but you're not helping yourself heal. You're just covering it up. You're band-aiding. And so it, again, like I can't lie. It, it was so hard, but it has been the most rewarding, beautiful journey of my life. I am so grateful. I'm so grateful because I've learned now that I am my mom's legacy. Um, I've been able to find her every single day. She's still with me every single day. Um, and that I've, I'm, I'm just, I'm not the woman I was two years ago. And I'm so proud of who I am today. And for me, even saying that two years ago, I would never say I was proud of myself because in my eyes that was egotistical or it was, um, it was a sign of me having, um, you know, being almost cocky. I get part of being a woman in 21st century, but I can honestly say today, I am so fucking proud of myself. Yes. Ah, wow. Victoria, that was beautiful. Oh, thank you for, thank you for sharing that. Um, so I'm curious, like I, and I'm, I feel like there's kind of a lot of grief happening in the world right now. Yeah. It's kind of a big, and whether it be coronavirus or riot, whatever it is, um, what were some ways like, and you said you, you asked for help and you got a spiritual, like mm -hmm. sort of like teacher, what were some things that you did for you during this whole transition? Yeah, so I have always been, so funny story about me, I actually had a really bad speech impediment as a kid because my brain went faster than my mouth. So I've always had a very rapidly moving brain and my mom also had one. So she was able to, to show me the ropes and, but there were some things that from a, a very young age that she always said to me that when your brain is moving too fast, you always need to do these things. Mm -hmm. One of them was make lists. One of them was make some type of, um, have your anchors, your things that can help you. That's shifted as I've grown, but I think anchors for me are such a critical part of my last couple of years. And it was because the way that I saw it was I was like, okay, I'm in the storm. I am in the storm and it's thrashing and it is ugly right now. And that I'm like, when a boat has an anchor, they can still move. They stay put, but they're moving around this anchor and that they can't decide what the weather's going to do, but they're anchored. So I was like, I need to be a boat and I need to get my anchor because I don't want to capsize. I want to be able to continue on my journey when I'm able to do so. But right now I got to stay put, I need to drop anchor and I need to recognize that even if I have my anchor, I still am going to be moving. It's not rigid. It is not going to be rigid at all. Um, there's a quote by Susan David. It's rigidity in the face of complexity is, is toxic. And for me, that was, that, I mean, that I, another quote that changed my life. Cause I was like, shit, my life right now is really, really complex, which means I can't be rigid. So what that looked like for me is I had my anchors at three to five anchors in throughout every single day 
from as simple as making my bed to brushing my teeth. Now it's a little bit, it's shifted, but back then it was literally the basics. I, I have it in my notebook that every night I write in and then for the next day of what my task was, wake up. And it was because the bad days, waking up was an accomplishment for me. And if I saw that I did that, I got that sense of accomplishment and it then gave me, I mean, you get this, I can go, I can intellectualize it, but it gave me happiness to know that I actually accomplished something. So you get a little bit of worth self-worth in there and you're on with your life. You're on with your ways. So I, um, I definitely, the anchors were a big part. So, um, for me personally, I journal every morning. I have my, my prompts that I do. I have my morning routines. I have my wind down routines and my anchors kind of sit within those. So I, I get up and I meditate. Um, I meditate I've actually, for the last year, I've meditated every morning before then I used to do it throughout the day. But I realized for me personally, doing it first thing in the morning was really important to help me have a more conscious state for the rest of the day. Um, I journal and my journals are the, my prompts. And so they're uh, gratitude, affirm, intention for the day. Uh, feels, which is what you want to welcome, like what feeling you want to welcome. I do my purpose, which is literally the same thing every single day. And then the last one, which is my most important one, which is my reminder. And that's, if my mom was alive, what would she tell me today? And my mom used to text me every single day or call me. So when I didn't live and then when I lived here, we used to talk. So that one for me helps me be grounded because part of being grounded is to know you are not alone. It is that idea of just, you are safe, you are okay, you are not alone, you are loved. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that reminder for me has been so important to my relationship I have with life over the last year since, you know, doing life without my mom. Um, and so that's my, that's part of my morning routine. And then my evening, I, you know, I write what my day is going to look like. I'm not a rigid scheduler anymore because I realize that life is far too complex when you are self-employed and a PhD student. So I have my things like for me, instead of saying going to the gym, it's movement. If I, I got to move every day, I got to connect to my body. I know that I like to work out about, you know, in, like in a gym setting at least four days a week is what I like. If I can do more or if I feel like I can do more, great. But I also know I can't do more than six. And for me to keep my, because I've got some hyperinsulinia and blood sugar stuff I always have to manage just for the rest of my life that I shouldn't do less than two. So I have this, this kind of this very open relationship with working out now that I have to move every day, but what that looks like is going to be different. Some days it's going to be, you know, some circuits with my 20 pound dumbbell in my garage and other days it might be a little bit more involved, but I go off of how I feel. I go off on what I want to accomplish for the day. Um, I either will do like you know, yoga or free movement, like literally in my backyard on my, on my mat, or I, I mean, I go for walks every day of some capacity. Um, even if it's just doing mobility work, I learned that the connection I have with my body, that kinesthetic sense, I have to cultivate that or else I stay in my head too much. Um, and so, but I have to do it in a healthier way than I once did, um, where it was connecting to my body to try to be something that I wasn't. Whereas now I can connect with my body 
as a form of, of gratitude and love and appreciation for who I am and who I want to be. Um, I also, I mean, some of my other anchors are, I do, I mean, I am not afraid. I am, I used to fear asking for help and now I'm like, okay, so there's some jobs I hate doing like mowing lawn. I love gardening, but my neighbor kid can mow the lawn. Um, so little things like I have an accountant because I don't like doing that stuff. So I've learned that there's certain jobs that life is just far too short for me to put myself through that. And it's a, it's coming from a place of privilege, but it's also, I budget like a hawk and I am a student. So I live on a shoestring, but I'm a student that's very mindful of the things and her, her capacities and her limits. Um, so that's kind of like a piece of my anchor, I would say too. Um, another big uh, anchor that I have is, so I have something called 15 for 15. So this started at the beginning of COVID actually. Um, so I said, I started to realize that I was letting myself go down the digital default of sorts where I, things were starting to get feel kind of crazy with the world. So I was like, I would want to check in with people on text or email or I would check my social media, or I would check the news. And so instead of me taking those moments to breathe, I would fill them with digital. Now I work on my computer all day. I really don't need to spend more time on there. And I started to realize it wasn't healthy for me at all. Cause you get these messages that don't allow you to sort through your own thoughts. And so I made a list of 15 things that take 15 minutes or less. And they literally sit like above my desk, and so those are from anything from like, you know, rolling to reading a non-academic book to playing with my dog to, you know, folding laundry to cooking to doing some gratitude journaling. My, I mean, just basic mobility, power nap, walking outside, cuddling, breathing exercises, cooking, do a chore, go sit in the sun. And it sounds like so simple, but it's like, that's living, but it's really easy to go down that digital world. Um, and that my life as a PhD student doesn't always allow me to have like the digital detox of a whole weekend because of where I'm at with my research right now. So I had to kind of make that micro steps. Um, just like I have my list again, above my desk, like literally I'm going to write things that when I'm feeling overwhelmed, if it's in front of me, I don't have to think about it. And that's what I think a lot of us get into, especially if we're programmed in certain types of maybe maladaptive coping. We resort, like our brain is really smart and we resort back to the things that we know and the things that give us comfort. So if that's comfort food, if that is negative thinking, if that is contacting people that maybe you shouldn't be in your life anymore, if that is doing certain, you know, having certain actions towards your body or your brain or anything like that's our brain does that not because it necessarily hates us, but that's what we've conditioned it to want to do. And so as somebody who has, you know, I'm recovering uh, from my eating disorder and I think an eating disorder is no different than any other type of addiction. You are it for life. I will always have an eating disorder. I will always have body dysmorphia. I will always have an exercise addiction. That is my automatic programming unless I practice mindfulness against that. And so for me, knowing about like drink water, wiggle your toes, stretch, meditate, smile, 
things that take micro bits of time, but when you start feeling your heart rate raising, you have that go-to list that's there. It does not take any thought. You know exactly what you need to do. And so those are some of my anchors that, I mean, they're there every single day for me. Um, because I've lived life without them and that's not the life for me anymore. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. I know so many people are going to get stuff out of that. That was, I love takeaways too, because I know that not, I know everybody's life is like going crazy right now. And like the digital, now that everybody's at home and in front of all of their digital things, like even I find myself, like I have to like put down my phone. I'm like, I, ju- I literally just looked like, just put it yeah. down and walk away. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you, and that those 15 under 15 are just so great. Oh my gosh. And if we all incorporated some of those each day, like each day we can do probably two of those at some point. Um, mm-hmm. And even just going outside like that's and playing with your dog, like two super awesome, amazing vibrations mm-hmm. just to like break up your day a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But if I don't think about it, I either can sit at my desk and work all day or I'll fill it with noise and it's not happy noise. It's not productive noise. It's noise that is not, it's not like I have like certain questions I'll ask myself that like I've, I've really worked to reprogram my thinking and being able to be like, is this serving you? Like, like literally the brain in my head goes like, Victoria, is this serving you? And sometimes it will be something as simple as like, it's related actually to my research, but it's me going instead of like on my research path for finishing my PhD, it's doing like this. <laughs> and so I've had to really wake up to that noise and how much energy, effort, and time that noise takes me and takes me away from other things. And sometimes that's okay. Like I'm not a robot. I'll still procrastinate. I'll still do things that maybe aren't conducive to like the life I'm, I'm pursuing, but that's human. I'm human. And I've let go of that perfectionism. Um, I think that like another couple of things that have been really helpful for me is like some stuff as simple as, so I jokingly don't joke by saying this, but I think we all have superpowers and my superpower that I did not know I had was self-compassion because before I had so much self-hatred and self-hatred was the fuel that got me to be the academic expert I am. And it was a hard lesson to learn that. And it was a hard lesson to learn that that was actually, there was passion in there too. That passion was the real fuel, but self-loathing was that kind of that gremlin that attached itself to the passion. And it was the one that actually did burn me out it wasn't the one that helped me. It wasn't the one that served me and that I could still be a damn good professional and human being without the self-loathing and that I could still be motivated without the self-loathing. And it was learning self-compassion. And I kid you not, it was not until 2000 and fall of 2018 that I even, I have a friend who is a researcher in self-compassion but I had such a disassociation between her talking about it and me doing it and practicing it. Um, and I used to, I mean, I sort of put on the self-compassion meditation. I would just start bawling my eyes out. I would yeah. just uncontrollably start crying. If I wanted to cry, I would turn on the self-compassion one. 
It was like a 15 minute long, more like a body scan, but it just, I just, cause I didn't know what it was. And then I realized that I actually did. I just, it wasn't my default. Mm-hmm. My default was the self-loathing. So for me today, knowing that self-compassion is my superpower, knowing that I have to flex that every day in some capacity, um, I've really worked to re to align the way I look at my body in a different way, to meet it with gratitude, um, to be able to see my body now for, I mean, bodies are, there's a reason why I study them. They're so cool. They are so amazing. Um, but to also recognize that like, I got, I don't got control over this thing. I need to start like, you know, worshiping and being grateful for all the things it does to me because I, I've been a dick to my body. I have been such an asshole to my body and not just for like a couple of years. It's been, it was for me, it was like when I I turned 30 last year and I was like, I have, so I, when I moved, I looked at old journals I had, I had journaled when I was seven years old about being fat. So I've literally negatively talked about my body for me. That was like for more, way over half my life. So for most of my life, I've been negative to my body. I got a long road to repay it for those debts. Mm. I got a long road ahead of me and I'm so ready for it. Oh, that's great. I recently heard something about being on the same team as your body. And I had never heard it put that way before. And I was like, that is so beautiful because we are on the same team as our body and our minds are the only things that tell us different. And our minds are what we've programmed them to be. Our minds aren't some like, you know, they're not some negative fleeting thing. It's that gets, that gets happened, right? It gets conditioned in us. And for some of us that happens at a young age and for others of it, it doesn't, for me, it was really important in my own journey to find out what, why was I, where were these messages coming from? And even today, like things will come up. I work with a a PhD coach um, and we got talking about some of my anxiety about writing. And it was like, I realized that my anxiety about writing came from like elementary school. So I had been carrying this narrative around perfectionism and schoolwork since elementary school. I've done, I'm on year 14 of post-secondary. I am still holding on. And I was like, that's not serving me, is it? And she just like looked at me and she's like, no, like how, no. But that's the beautiful thing about this journey, I think, is you get to start to if you choose to, if you choose to go down that road of healing and, you know, breaking yourself open and really looking at yourself, you get to start seeing these really interesting connections and associations and learning then to heal them and being able to laugh at some of them, being able to cry at others, getting really angry at others. Um, sometimes I get pissed at myself for, you know, some of the relationships I got myself into, um, some of the different ways I used like, you know, men and coping as a coping skill, it's like, if it wasn't work, if it wasn't in the gym, it was my relationships with men, yeah. not healthy. Uh, do I wish I could turn back time? Sure. But at the same time, I know that all of that led me to here. And here is a really good place to be. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mic drop. Here is a really good place to be, everybody. Be here and now. There's a reason why that's said. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I have a question about your meditation journey. Yeah. Um, like when did it start and how has it developed? How is it different now than 
maybe when it started or what's kind of developing for you out of this? Because meditation is almost like a gateway (laughs) drug into spirituality. And then you're like, oh my goodness. Yeah. So I, so before, so if anybody has listened to any of my podcasts or anything like that, like I did one with Ben Pack back in 2017, I believe it was. He asked me about my meditation practice. And back then I was like, oh yeah, you know, like when I put my makeup on in the morning, like I'm meditating because I'm thinking I'm very focused in that moment. But then it's also like when I go for walks or how I connect to my body. And so like now I am formal with my meditation practice. And I think that's okay. That is meditation. Meditation is whatever we want it to be. There are different, it's a continuum of all these different modalities. And back then that was, that was it for me. It was, you know, taking my dog for a walk. Um, that was really important. Now though, it's different in that it's very much, it's a formalized practice. Um, I do. So since the summer of 2018, um, that was when I started doing more guided meditation. Um, I don't, I use the app insight timer and love it. Yeah. Um, this is my favorite because you've got music and you've got chanting and you've got silence and you've got timer and you've got teachers and you got all this different stuff. So I've, um, I've used that since 2018. I actually downloaded it. I I tried different ones and that was the one that fit me personally. Um, I use binaural beats as well. Um, especially when I'm going more wanting to go like long. Um, but I do, I do, I do not ascribe to any one practice of meditation. I mean, I go from more of like your Buddhist based ones to ones that would be considered to be like more, um, body scan based and more just like physical to ones that are more teacher based. And, you know, there's, it's less about, um, connecting with feelings and more about connecting with thoughts and really working through kind of the monkey brain. Um, but I have to say I had some really crazy experiences with meditation right away. And that is why I'm very grateful that I had a guide because I thought I had vertigo and I was convinced I had vertigo and it was because I could connect really. So there's this place in meditation that you can go with your brain that you literally feel a lot of people will talk about it, that they feel like they're floating or they feel that they're flying. And so within three weeks, you people don't usually get to that for decades. Yeah. I went there and I was like, I'm like, Oh my God, I have vertigo. What the hell? Cause I was so stressed out back then. It was right after I moved and I, I, um, I texted my, my meditation guide and I was like, I think I have vertigo. Like, should I keep doing meditation lying down? He was like, let's talk about this. So when I told him, he was just like, Lord. And I was able to continue to do that. And for me, it was being able to actually connect to my body and get out of my brain allowed me to go somewhere that I thought was only possible with like drugs and that was about it. <laughs> and I did it myself. And that for me was such a cool experience. Um, you get hooked, but then the more you try to get it, the more you won't ever get to do it because it's actually you not wanting it and not knowing about it is how you get there. Um, but really the only time for me, like it, it did start off very when I needed it. And then I realized just like therapy and just like daily anchors, the best time to do it is when you don't need it. So it then became a daily practice for me. And then from it being a daily practice, it became a morning practice and a morning ritual. I still do sometimes, if I need it, I'll do longer ones throughout the day. Um, I 
find that like 17 ish minutes is like, it's about as long as I go in the morning. I don't go any less than 10. Um, and typically if I go over 25, it's, there's some reasons for that. Um, but that's kind of like my sweet spot I have for the morning. Um, but it's not hard. Like I can, gosh, I've done like 90 minute sits. But I had to get, like, that took practice to get there. Mm-hmm. That took a lot of practice to be able to get to a 90-minute set of, like, a binaural-based. Um, but it goes, like, you don't, you don't realize it's 90 minutes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's my, that's my meditation journey. It's been exciting. It has been really exciting. Yeah. I love it. So I absolutely love it. Isn't it great? I've, I, I'm with you. We have so many similarities and maybe it's because we have the same birthday. Maybe it's because we're both cancers and like everything you're yeah. saying, I'm like, yes, yes, queen. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, like I know from like, in, like as a, as a academic, like I know the research that exists on this stuff mm-hmm. and people that like, and that's where for me, like I intellectualize the shit out of everything. That is my brain. So of course I start my meditation journey. I start looking at their research and I was like, shit, like there's so much research on it. And then I'm like, well, of course, like you learn, you know, in our dialogue, it's like, well, of course, Victoria, like you learned back in first year of your university about this thing called like vagal tone and why it's so important and why breathing and, you know, managing your nervous system response. And it's like, I taught that I stood in front of hundreds of people teaching that yet I did not apply it to me. I did not, I was, I was the one off apparently. And I realize I'm actually not that special and I still need to do things like, you know, breathe. And if I had one piece of advice for anybody who wants to get in, it's just that. And it's take two minutes a day and just breathe intentionally. Like that's all you've got to do to down, like from the research end of it, that's all you have to do to get your nervous system out of drive. You know, go into rest and digest. It's about six breaths a minute is what it takes to get into your, to actually get your vagal nerve, um, to get vagal tone, six breaths a minute. Wow. So for people to like, uh, for pe- like even for me, that was, that was part of my gateway was I set a timer on my phone in the spring of 2008. And that was what I started. Cause I was, I started having panic attacks yeah. and, um, when I had a panic attack, it's like you used to see in like shows back in the day of like people with their paper bags and everything. And I would be like, I'd be my, I just like set my timer for two minutes and just be like, okay, I got this. I got this. I got this. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it's, I've come a long way in a very short time. Good. 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 And, and what else, what other spirituality things have you or modalities or what other, cause I'm just, I'm so curious. So, yeah. So I, so other modalities. So I meditate. Um, I've done different types of energy healing. Um, okay. I mean, I've absolutely love, love acupuncture and Reiki and all of that stuff. Um, I mean, I've played around with uh, even like looking into things around like shamanism. Um, I have friends of mine that are, that are both, both worlds. I mean, and that's the cool thing that exists. There are doctors, like there's some neurosurgeons out there that are also shamans. It's very idiotic for us to think like modern medicine was about 1850. 
it is idiotic for us to think that modern medicine is the king when thousands of years exist before it and that there are things even back then that we don't do anymore back then in modern medicine at the onset they were talking about breathing and connecting to your body and the importance of having things like daily bowel movements all the things we've forgotten that help human beings be healthy um and so i am definitely i mean from anything from like traditional chinese medicine to more of like the shamanism you connect with South America. Um, so I've definitely dappled in reading, learning, talking to people from all of those worlds, um, different types of body work and body energy work. Um, I've dappled in that stuff. Um, have you ever done ser- plant medicine? Have you dabbled, have you like done a ceremony yet? No, I have not. I have lots of friends that do. Um, that is, it for it was talking to my partner about it. I said it's still something for me that is. I'm not there yet. I might yeah. be one day, but I'm not there yet, and that's yeah. gonna be. I it's part of my journey, and I'll probably get there one day. But for right now, I'm okay with having like the un, the, the non-influenced of myself. Even with energy healing, I actually, um, there were certain things in my journey um, after my mom died that I didn't want any energy work done. I was like, I gotta, I, I'm working through something right now and I need to keep it for me. Um, and that, that I'm like, this is me and this is mine. And I don't want you to take this away right now. Um, so I feel like I'm still kind of there with some stuff. Um, I mean, uh, like utilizing different elements. So whether it's nature, um, from like gems and crystals and that type of thing, all the way to actually like just grounding the notion of grounding it's like and people go like oh the chart but you're so you're a scientist like i can't believe you're, you sound so woo. i said you know what there's no number one there's research so if there's research <laughs> i got you there number two <laughs> as human beings we need to do what feels best and feels most authentic for us and if you open yourself up to the possibility that number one there's there's so much we don't know and so i i just i mean for me it's you need to do whatever feels best and most authentic for you. And that's going to be different for all of us. And somebody who is say still utilizing drinking as their form of escapism versus somebody who may be, and they might see it as healing uh, versus somebody who might be doing something different, like putting, you know, certain rocks in their pocket or, you know, walking around barefoot. Like you, we as human beings should not judge others for what they perceive they need. Yes, there are unhealthy ways to do it, but that's their journey. And often, especially if you know uh, any type of uh, individual that's got mental health, um, uh, some degree of consciousness, or even they're I mean, battling with addiction, you can't tell them what's right and what's wrong. Because yeah. they believe in what they're, what they're doing is what's right for them. And that there's this, that definitely this awakening that people go through this consciousness that they wake up and they go like, Hey, I don't think this is healthy for me anymore. Um, or I don't think this is what I need to be doing for me. And, uh, that's when it comes to like healing, it's the same kind of thing. You know, people wake up to, Hey, there might be more. I mean, even within medicine, like German medicine is insanely advanced compared to what we do in North America from what they do with like different types of light therapies. Um, and different type of actual like energetic therapies, 
a different type of um, magnetic field work and stuff like that. Like it's insane. Um, and so again, what you know, what you, what was that saying that I used to tell my dad? Cause my, my dad and I would always like, he'd be like, aren't you, I don't understand you. And I'd be like, well, dad, it's because what you don't understand scares you. What I don't understand intrigues me. Yes. And it still scares me, but I'm intrigued yes. and I'm willing to see it unfold rather than close the door and pretend it doesn't exist. Um, and that even like, even with my mom, like she was so, especially by the end as she was so open to everything. Um, but I mean, even years before, I mean, acupuncture and energy work and all that. And she was, she, I mean, she was a nurse practitioner. She was in the field herself. Um, so I think it is being open to different types of energy, spiritual work. Yes, yes, yes. Just the openness. I feel like anybody who's walking a spiritual journey, because like you said, like there's no one, even like meditation, it would be silly, I think, to subscribe to just one method or form because there are so many different others and they all have their benefits and they all might have their place in your journey at a specific time. Like chanting might be really powerful for you or Reiki might be really. And I think Mm -hmm. anybody walking a spiritual journey or even an academic journey, I feel like Mm -hmm. having your mind open and not super Mm -hmm. closed and rigid to anything is will give you the best I guess it's it's for me that was my that was my summer 2018 mantra was I am open to being open and it was I can remember the day I can remember exactly where I was what I was doing and everything and I was just like I am open to being open I'm open just seeing where this road takes me and if it's you know if I'm if I feel comfort with something that somebody else might label as woo I don't give a shit like they don't get to tell me what I can and can't do and what's going to make me feel good or judge me for doing something that's helping me through this incredibly difficult time in my life. I grew, uh, I definitely grew some major confidence since starting my spiritual journey and standing up for those things. I think saying no in any capacity, even if it's that saying no to people judgment and that was not something that me earlier on in my life could do wow wow powerful and spirituality how would you define it if there is a definition um Believing in yourself, believing in your capacity, Mm -hmm. believing in the, the unknown, the other, believing that there's a greater force greater than you, you don't need to label it. You don't need to, um, to worship it. All you need to do is acknowledge it. And acknowledge that there is more to this life than just you. But it starts with you believing in you. So I think that if you're going to worship or pray or believe in anything, it should start with you. Because that will open your door up 
to everything else. Yes. Yes. Boom. I thank you. That was so great. And that's a hard one to define, right? Because like, oh, but it's it's kind of everything. (laughs) It's kind of, and right before we were talking, so I'm building an intro to spirituality course. So I start with defining what is spirituality. And it's so much a personal connection. And as you go in, you also come out because as you relate to yourself differently, you relate and treat other people different and the universe as well. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad that you said that. I think for me, what happened very early on was when I gained self-compassion, I was able to take the compassion I applied for everybody else to myself. Like I always used to say to people, like, I've never had a temper. I mean, that's just, I was saying to my boyfriend yesterday, like, I'm like, I still don't understand why people lie. Like for me, that's just such a foreign concept. And, um, and so I would always just say like, you know, that person's doing the best that they can. You know, if I got cut off when I was driving, I'd be like, they must have to go pee. Yes. Like that, that's all they got to do. It's, there's nothing malicious. And if there is, then they're still doing the best that they can be. And I started applying that to myself. And so I think for me, like that self-compassion is a big pillar of spirituality. And I think the connection is also a big piece, the connection to yourself, the connection to others, the connection to nature, the world around you, your passions, your pursuits. Also though, things like your fears, your traumas, because that's what then allows you to heal. And I think heal is another kind of pillar for me of spirituality and heal in all sense, you know, heal your body, heal your relationship you have with it, heal the relationship you have to others, Um, heal, even being open to things that you might not know exist but being open to healing those things in the right time when they, when that kind of unfolds and manifests. Um, I, so yeah, I think for me, spirituality is such a loaded thing, but yeah. it's beauty is in its complexity. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It definitely it's beauty has been there because when you go on a journey, it's that unknown and comfort with the unknown. And because spirituality, I think, is something that has got that degree of, you know, mist- I mean, there's a reason why spirituality, the spiritual movement was connected to like um, mysticism at the, that turn of the, the 20th century. Um, it, I mean, you know, people were using like Ouija boards and their mediums all of a sudden. It was like that mysticism that really like enthralled people was because it was this unknown. And it was so, it was like this Victorian um, perfectionism of the women wearing the corsets and the men that were, you know, the, the breadwinners. And it was this perfectionism, this modernist ideas that then all of a sudden the spiritual movement came in and, you know, people were just like, Oh, what is this? What is it? There's something more than just like, you know, Christianity and Catholicism. Like, what is this? And that unknown and then being okay with that, being intrigued by it. Like that is, that is spiritualism. The curiosity to the mm-hmm. to the stuff that you can't see and I love belief mm-hmm. I feel like if you belief is such a like you mm-hmm. that's what you were saying belief in yourself belief in whatever but belief yeah. underneath yeah. it all is yeah. is spirituality yeah yeah so my so when I was 16 and I had my moment my moment the moment I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life yeah my that was really the first time I connected it was my mom was going through cancer treatment I was her caretaker it was just it was a messy time in my life that was like the first like messy time in my life that was like, 
I acknowledged as actually being messy. Um, and, uh, but I went out into nature and I went, and I was just, you know, crying and it was raining and I just didn't care. I just need to get away. But eventually my mind just cleared and what came into focus for me were just like three words. And those three words have changed my life because I've hung on to them since then. And it was dream, believe and inspire. And that's been my, my guidepost, my mantra, like literally since I was 16 years old. Um, and believe was always that like the believing in yourself and believing in your purpose and your potential and your ability to live your best life. And even though my road has shifted and turned, when things got hard, even when I might have been disconnected from a more authentic version of myself, I still would go back to that and go, okay, right, believe in yourself. You've got to believe in yourself. You know, you've got to dream for more, dream for beyond, work towards that. And then to be able, for me, it was always to be able to see the inspiration, to feel the inspiration, cultivate it, and pass it on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's even like by you dreaming and believing, you automatically mm -hmm. inspire others. Because to me, an inspiration is almost like your spirit talking to my spirit without me knowing it. And mm -hmm. so I think when people see you dreaming big and believing and going after it, that in itself is mm -hmm. the last little rung there. So mm -hmm. that's a beautiful oh, dream, believe, inspire. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you end up doing, like, you know, like no matter what road you're on, those three things can always exist. Oh, yeah. That's wonderful. I had some wisdom back then. I just didn't know it yet. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I, I look back to some of my diary entries when I was like 15, 16. I'm like, damn, like I was deep and I did not know it. <laughs> like an inner dialogue of a 15-year-old. I was like, I thought it would be all angsty and it was, it was not. It was very like profound. And if only I stopped, you know, when people say like, what would you, or what would you, or you tell your 15-year-old you? Yeah, yeah. And I sometimes go like, no, it's like, what's my 15-year-old me trying to teach me? Because she was on it. <laughs> and then she, you know, even though, again, back then, like, I still had a lot going on, a lot of self-loathing, a lot of insecurities and everything else. But I feel that there was this bit of, like, purity that I had that got knocked away for a couple of years there. Yeah. It was still there. It just got knocked away. It was like when you prune back a bush a little too hard. And the next spring, it doesn't grow back fully. And it takes a couple of years until it comes back. And then it comes back bigger. I yes. feel like that's, that was me. It just took me a little bit. I just got diverted. Yeah. I think anybody, if, I feel like anybody on a spiritual path, in a way, goes through that. Like sort of a diversion or a really low, a, a bottom or a dark, a dark night of the soul. Like I know I've definitely gone through my fair share of them. But it's, I think it's those people who walk that dark path for a little bit and they're okay in it. Yeah. They rise and they're able to uh, inspire those who are, who are in the dark right now, who are like, man, mm -hmm. man, what do I do? And then, and then for somebody to hear you say, anchor, make your bed, 
mm-hmm. control what yeah. you can control. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I can't wait to get the feedback from this episode because mm-hmm. I just, I know I'm going to get text messages and I'm going to get things from everywhere. Like, Oh my God, Victoria's awesome. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to cover or anything you wanted to get out? Um, um, and we can, I think, yeah, yeah, I think, well, I just think one of the other big things that was one of my anchors, just going back to that is hold on to protect your purpose. Like even I, I did a podcast with like my, my partner, Scott, Dr. Scott Stevenson, he's big in the bodybuilding world and John Meadows at the beginning of, and Skip Hill at the beginning of um, COVID, of the shutdowns. And that was actually one of the things, because we were talking about like, what are we doing? Like, where are we going? <laughs> um, and that was one of the things I said was like, you know, it, for me, it always comes back to my why. And my why, like when shit got really, really tough in the spring of 2018, like I went back to what my why is and that was my family. And deciding whether or not I was going to compete, I went back to my why. And I have held on to that. And I literally write it down every single day. I have to because life gets noisy and I need that reminder. And I think for anybody that is, you know, going through their own breaking open point, it's ask yourself what you really, truly want. And not like anything big about accomplishing a certain task is what makes you happy? What makes you feel like you? At the end of the day, when you die, what is your legacy? Like, what is that thing you're instilling? Like, I look at my mom's life and like, I am my mom's legacy now. It is the coolest thing. To know that I am my mom's legacy and that her thoughtfulness and her intellect and her great, like just the gratitude she had for the world, her connection with nature. Like I sit out on my porch every morning when I drink my coffee and that's where my mom loved to sit. And I'm like, this is my mom's legacy. She was somebody that enjoyed that moment of that, that twilight hour, that dawn of seeing things rise. And we'd always talk about what that meant to her. And I've, I have that now that she gave that to me. And so I think that for somebody to just sit to sit down and, and identify, and I do every year, I go back and it turns into this big list of me just literally going like, almost like a list of like, like do it, what matters to me? What is my legacy? And it, you've got to not say you're to get to it. You have to like actually put it in your schedule and be like, I am sitting my ass down, whether or not I feel like it or not, I'm doing it because it's easy to let other things with life get in the way of that. But it is so important. Even if you're not on your own spiritual journey, even if you're not, you know, you're not there yet, just know your purpose. You cannot live with passion if you do not have your purpose. And your process of figuring out your purpose is that list of what's really important to me and like kind of like whittling it down to like a final like sentence almost. Yeah. 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 And it's not that the other things don't matter. They still do. Yeah. They absolutely do. I have like, it's funny because like I even have, I was cleaning my desk this morning um, and I was like, I literally have like little to-do lists that people would think would be like a grocery list that it's like, 
taking care of my body. Wow. <laughs> like letting go and being able to be comfortable with it. Asking myself what feels right for my body right now. Like breathing. Things that people would go like, those aren't part of your purpose. And it's like, well, yeah, they are. Because I've been to a point before that they weren't in my radar. And I forgot about them. Um, and, you know, to actually pursue what you love. what Even if it might not be as a job, like a vocation. Not all of us are lucky to have our vocation as our purpose. And trust me, writing a PhD is not my purpose. Getting the story out is, I am writing for me is a challenge. And, uh, but it's on the road. It is a part of the bigger picture. So I have to get the help I can and move forward on it. Cause like, you're not going to love every single day, but if you're living your purpose, if you're holding, even on those rough times that you're letting it anchor you and be your guide. I truly believe that you are, you know, you're limitless. And I believe that because I've been it now. So to have that acknowledgement, that recognition and the confidence to know that even if you don't need it, even if you don't know it, keep working on it and hold on to it. Yeah, just one foot in front of the other. Follow the good feeling. Like that's that that's like mm -hmm. my big direction pointer. Leaving bodybuilding, getting into bodybuilding, the whole situation. And what I always come back to for myself is follow the good feeling. And I think that for anybody looking for their purpose or their passion or their why or something like that, like what we're we're here to feel good. Yeah. So you know, yeah. follow the good feeling. We're here to we're here to feel good, and that life is the most precious gift that we all have. Not everybody gets that gift and not everybody gets to open that gift fully and not everybody gets to hold on to that gift for as long as they want to. And so for me, I, I have this gift. I mean, I lost, I lost one of my best friends at 24 years old. I lost my mom at 30. Um, so Life is so precious and I choose to live it for me with gratitude, with an open heart, an open mind and self-compassion. And I choose to recognize that as hard as it is, it's hard because I'm living life consciously. I'm awake. Yeah, yeah. It would be a lot easier if I decided to dull my pain you know, to abuse my body, to utilize masking agents and everything else. But I choose to live it consciously. And because that is my choice, I am open to whatever then I feel good, bad, and everything in between because it is only temporary. Yes. It all unfolds. It all shifts as long as you're willing to just stay your path. Good. Well, well, we'll wrap it up with that. I feel like that was a beautiful ending to our beautiful conversation. Victoria, this has been absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's been and amazing. So, I am so happy to I'm be like, connected with you. I'm like blushing because I just, I'm, that was a lot. That I was great. <laughs> Thank you uh, for sharing that with us. And I know that was a little bit different than what you're used to sharing. So I appreciate your honesty and vulnerability and everything with that. And I just want you to know that. 
I think that this episode is going to help a lot of people. So by you like being brave and just by speaking, I think, you know, I don't know. I just think a lot of people are going to get a lot from this. That is then my, my job is done. Like it's, that's for me. And it's like, this isn't a job. This is me just talking about life. And I, you know, you wish you can, my mom always used to say this. I wish I could protect you from the pain. And I wish I could tell you to make the decision that will be best, but I can't, but I can be here with open arms and I can be a guiding light and I can help you feel that you're not alone. I can help you and remind you to know you're never alone and it's all going to be okay. And if I can do that, then that for me is, you know, my mom was a brilliant woman. She did a lot for healthcare, but that legacy I think is her most special. And thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. Yes. Now, where, if that people want more of you, where can they find you? Well, I'm currently, my best friend is currently messaging stuff on social media for me, like posting. So I'll be back. <laughs> but right now I'm still, I still, I took a step back um, and it's been amazing. Um <laughs> But I'll be back. Um, so bear with me. But it's just Victoria Felker on Instagram and Facebook. And um, my website is just victoriafelker.com. And my like all my contact information is on my website, all the like podcasts I've done. Um, I don't do as much kind of posting as some of the other people just because I'm doing a PhD full time. But give me a year and I'll be doing this full time. So I'll be back. Oh. Good, good. And we, I, I would even love to, I feel like you and I could talk for so long. <laughs> I want to just come hang out with you now in your cool little room with all the art and the crystals and the studies. Like I, we would be, we would have so much fun. It's uh, you know, living in small town was the best. It was a gift. It was this moving here was such a gift in my town. I mean, it is, it's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. It was perfect. It was what I needed. And going back to cities now, I'm like, I don't know if I could do it. I and I was a city girl. I yeah. don't think I could do it. Yeah. It's, I like I like the flow of a uh, small town life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's more nature. There's more like it, it, more of the stuff that actually matters. Not, and I same. I would used to be kind of. Con- I used to like the city and like the the active activity. And now I we drive to Denver and I can smell the gasoline, like I can smell the city coming into it. And I'm like, can we just go back to like the trees, please? (laughs) So good. Good stuff. So so good. You're welcome anytime to my little, my little humble abode. Oh, yes. I also spend half my time though in like just outside of Detroit at my partner's. So I come back here and I like detox. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay. Well, thank you, Victoria and everybody. Thank you for listening. Um, Thank you so much gratitude. I'm just like pouring. That's the only thing I can say right now to the world and to you is just thank you, everybody. And we'll see you on the next one. Thank you. Thank you.